Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 268. And currently, I am in a cabin in the woods in the Catskills region of New York. So you may hear some creatures of the woods behind me, as it's quite noisy right now. But I think it makes for a a pretty cool backdrop. Yesterday, I was in Nyack, New York where I recorded with David Hill. David Hill is a writer and really, I would say, journalist with the work that he did with this book. Uh, So I had read a book by him called The Vapors, A Southern Family, The New York Mob, and The Rise and Fall of Hot Springs, America's Forgotten Capital of Vice. I've been many places, but I really haven't been to Arkansas. I've been on the outskirts. (laughs) I've been to Memphis, which is like a stone's throw across the the state border. But I didn't know a whole lot about Hot Springs and its history with gambling. And then, of course, its tie-in with the mob from various states. So this was really a fascinating read for me. And I was so happy that I got to, to hang out with David at his home and to pick his brain and to learn more about the stories. It's wild because he had to do these Freedom of Information Act requests to get wiretaps. And I was just imagining myself in his position. It's like a wiretap from the FBI comes in the mail and how exciting and, and, and wild that must be to be reading that and to be eavesdropping into a moment in history that somebody thought was quite private at the time. So this is an awesome book. I really think you need to read it <laughs> before you listen to this conversation. I mean, that's always the case when I have a writer or an artist on. Uh, I think we did a good job, though, of describing things if you haven't read it yet. There's certain characters that we refer to sometimes by first name, like Dane or um, Oni Madden is a, a famous mobster from New York who really made a living in Hot Springs. Uh, So those are characters that you need to know about. I would recommend reading it, but certainly if you listen to the episode first, go out and purchase his book, support him, uh, and read it so that you can kind of fill in all the gaps that that we didn't fill in ourselves. What is that? Something is coming out of the woods towards me. Oh, it's a deer. Okay, anyway, sorry, I'm out here alone. I don't know why I'm whispering. Um, You can go to the notes in this uh, episode, in the player that you're listening to this in, and you will find a link to David's website. He's also going to mention his fantastic podcast in this episode. So check that out. Give him a follow and a subscribe and all those things that help out, you know, producers and creators. There's also a link to my Patreon account. That's uh, patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. Massive subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks. Sometimes those kickbacks are books from the authors that appear on this podcast. So you never know. Maybe you'll get a copy of The Vapors if you become a Patreon subscriber. All right, folks, I'm going to stop yapping from my porch here in the woods and tell you to enjoy this conversation with David Hill. Well, thank you for having me at your house. Like, it's always such a pleasure that I get to meet people that I'm like really fond of their work, and often I'm like now a stranger in their home. So uh, <laughs> this is no different. So thank you. No problem. Thanks for saying that. Um, before we get into the book, and I'm ashamed that I didn't know about the podcast because that sounds so interesting. Uh, you were just out in Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. was that for the podcast or yep. for research for a new book? That was for the podcast, yeah. I was following around this, um, well, I was there twice, but the most recent time I was there was to follow around this um, golfer who is like maybe one of the most uh, successful golf hustlers in the history of Las Vegas. And uh, so I went out on the golf course with him and hung out with him for a while and got to hear his life story. Um, And then I was out there for the Super Bowl 
following around a guy who was betting like two and a half million dollars on prop bets during the Super Bowl and then sort of watching the game with him to see how much he would win. Um, so those were a couple different episodes for this season. I go to Vegas a lot, you know, especially since I started this podcast. But even before the podcast, I covered gambling topics a lot. You know, I wrote about a lot of gambling uh, subjects and gamblers. So I was I tend, I go out there quite a bit. Your family connection to the books starts with your grandparents, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you explain that real quick? Yeah. So my um, uh, my grandmother, who is kind of the main character of my book, she. Um, she sort of grew up in around in and around the gambling business, and her husband, my grandfather, um, he, um, you know, he dies pretty early on, and so she's mainly, you know, she's sort of a single mom to my dad and his brothers through most of the book, and uh, and she works in and around gambling business, but she also takes on a lot of she takes a lot of partners over those years after he dies who also are, you know, gamblers, you know, hustlers, you know, whatever, con artists. Um, uh, and uh, when I come along, you know, when I was born, like my, my grandmother was with a man who was a, um, a carny, you know, he was a carnival con man, a flat store operator. And she and he would uh, travel the country with the carnival kind of hustling people. I just wrote a piece in this month's Harper's Magazine about it, actually, about mm. where I traveled with the carnival last summer. And I was sort of inspired to do this because of my own sort of family connections to that world. And, and one, you know, the book ends when the, my book ends, that's when Hazel starts her kind of life with the carnival. And so I kind of wanted to explore that part of her life too. But yeah, I mean, my, my, my father, uh, Hazel's father was a horse trainer. My father definitely was a gambler and grew up, I grew up going to the horse races and going to the track, um, and was around gambling my whole life. And, uh, and I grew up with, you know, these grandparents who were carnival con artists. So, uh, so yeah, I feel like I've been sort of steeped in this culture, in this world, um, as long as I can remember. How early into your life were the stories from the book being told to you? Pretty, well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, some of the sort of um, darker stuff I didn't learn until I was much older, you know, mm-hmm. until I was maybe in college. Um, as a kid... What I definitely knew as as a child that my father grew up really poor and grew up um, in a difficult situation. I definitely knew that, you know, and I I knew that he, uh, you know, that he didn't have much. And a lot of people say that, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people say that they grew up poor or that they didn't have anything or that they struggled. That's relative. <laughs> it's very relative. You know, I would, I would say, you know, I think that I struggled growing up, but relative to my father, I didn't. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I definitely grew up with, you know, where the lights would get shut off because the bill wasn't paid and we'd sit in the dark. You know what I mean? Or, you know, my dad would have to pawn things to pay bills. That I grew up like that. But my dad grew up where he was essentially for, as a child was kind of left alone mm. and his mother was kind of gone a lot and she had a lot of issues with, you know, um, substance abuse and she was, you know, kind of, the, and she was a victim of domestic violence and he was really on his own a lot and he didn't have food to eat. You know, he would eat, he would literally eat like bread and sugar and water mixed together. And that was like a meal. You know what I mean? Like he, that's in the book too. I think I remember yeah, it, it is. And people, his friends, families would bring over food to him because they knew he didn't have food to eat. You know what I mean? He, he had like like one pair of jeans and one t-shirt that he wore every day. So my dad definitely struggled, you know, in a, in a very real way. He was really on the margin hmm. and, uh, and wasn't even like able to get to avail himself of any kind of public assistance because his mother was just so out of the picture and he was really kind of like a feral child on his own. You know yeah. what I mean? So there wasn't any, even any opportunity for that. So, um, so yeah, he struggled. And then even as he got older, um, the older he got and the more able he was to take care of himself, his mother falls deeper into drug addiction and then he ends up having to take care of her. So by the time he's a teenager, he's really becomes a parental figure to his own mother um, you know, he had to learn how to take care of her before he could take care of himself. There were two th- things I was thinking sort of just about human psychology while reading this. And you're fully immersed in this world of researching and interviewing people within the world of gambling. So you probably have really strong insights into this. But 
the first was that that a lot of it almost to me is like a, a, an American dream type of story, just sort of a a way out and gambling. Even if you think the stock market is gambling in a way, it offers people the hope of achieving that American dream, even though so few people are successful at gambling. Um, but the other thing I was thinking too, and I was wondering about your perception of this is in the book uh, and even in movies and and, in other books I've read about uh, the mafia and mob, you end up sort of rooting for people who otherwise do really bad things. (laughs) Like even Oni, like his nickname is the killer. But, you know, in my mind, I'm reading this, I'm like, oh no, I hope he doesn't get caught. Uh, I was wondering sort of like your relationship to the subjects you're researching and if you also felt that or felt like sort of like a kinship with the people you were writing about, obviously family, yes, but uh, the other characters. Well, Oni Madden, uh, who's one of the other main characters in the book, who is sort of a notorious gangster and uh, crime boss from New York, he, you know, yeah, he was a nefarious character. His nickname was The Killer. He had killed people. You know, he was, uh, he was a bad guy. But I think what allows us to root for him is that his enemies are also bad guys. Right. Mm. If Oni was just sort of one of these kinds of bad guys who just like steals from regular people, you know, terrorizes whatever civilians to like rob them or whatever. Like if that was his business, we wouldn't root for him. Like I think that part of why mob stories are so popular and why people will, you know, are willing to root for mobsters where they don't particularly root for criminals today in their contemporary life and society is because in mob stories, the mobsters' enemies are either cops or other mobsters, right? And there's sort of this idea in the mythology of the mob and the mythology of the way that this all went down that, you know, mobsters only really like, you know, they only hurt other mobsters. You know what I mean? Like there was all, it was like only people who were kind of in the game or whatever were going to get hurt and like they, and civilians weren't like, I think that's part of what allows in, in the, and I'm only talking about in these sort of fictional retelling of these things. I'm not saying in reality, but I think that that's why people are able to watch like a mob movie and root for the mobster because often the way these stories are told, the, the the other guy is a worse mobster. Right. And I think in in my book that is actually the case. Like in the in reality, Oni's enemies, Dane's enemies in this book are like are worse than them. You know, and so you want them to succeed. <laughs> you want Oni to win because you know that Carlos Marcelo, or you know, or uh, or Papa Joe is uh, that they're going to be bad guys and they're going to be much worse for Hot Springs than Oni and Dane, right? And even the, even the sort of battle within the local kind of gambling constabulary, there's a, um, you know, the Oni and Dane kind of faction of gamblers that we end up rooting for in this book, their vision for the business and for the um, community is that there would be is that they want to kind of clean it up and that their enemies the other gamblers that they're fighting against want to run what are you know run these like bust out joints which is a casino that's essentially rigged you know they just want to rob everybody blind and they want to run kind of more body type places and so and that also enables us to root for Oni and Dane mm. because we think the alternative is so much worse rather than cause, so that's what I that's what one of the, one of the reasons I think that mm. we can root for Oni in this book is because his real life uh, antagonists were uh, worse people than him. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that I think just even at a base level, it's just like these are exciting guys, right? And for a lot of us, it, it just the, the mundanity of day to day, like going to the cubicle every day, it's just not exciting. It's not sexy. Like we, we want to envision that we would in a way have like the coolness that he has. Um, yeah, but I, I think your, your analysis of it is really interesting. Uh, I want to talk about Hot Springs, which is a place that I've never been, uh, other than really knowing that there's a national park there and I think it's, yeah. it's the smallest. Um, yeah. As a destination, it started really with the springs themselves, right? As like right. a therapeutic type of a situation. Right, there's these sort of natural hot springs in the middle of Arkansas, 
and the discovery of these springs by, you know, well, we don't know who first discovered them, but the first kind of recorded discovery of them was the, was the Quapaw tribe who weren't, they didn't live in this area where these springs were. We just know that they would travel to them. Mm. And so the history is that they found them and then they would make their way there because they wanted to, you know, whatever, soak in the hot water. So that's the first kind of record record we have of humans, Mm. you know, kind of hang, you know, living in around these, this area. But yeah. And then from that moment on this area where hot springs is, is, uh, is frequent, you know, frequently visited by waves of native people, um, and then you know European travelers and explorers, and then eventually there's you know sort of people settle in there um, and build a uh, community around these springs to cater to people who are looking to bathe in the hot water. You know, from the beginning, it was a difficult place to travel to. Um, it really required a real you know effort to get there, mm. and. Uh, Still does to this day. <laughs> it's still not on a major, you know, interstate or anything like that. But uh, it's always been tough to get to Hot Springs, and you know, it sort of it was just sort of this little place nestled off into this valley that uh, people would come there to take baths. And yeah, they believed forever. People believed that this hot water that comes out of the Earth's surface must have some sort of, you know, early on it was like, oh, it must have a mystical, magical quality, power to it. And then later, actual medical professionals believed that it had medicinal qualities, that the hot water, that the minerals in the hot water could cure things, right? Mm. Cure different uh, illnesses. And so they would, doctors would prescribe to patients, go to the hot springs and sit in the bath every day until you're better. And that's, that was the prescription that people would get for all kinds of things, you know, from venereal diseases to, you know, um, I think in the book I talk about Meyer Lansky's kid having spina bifida. I mean, all kinds of like serious conditions that doctors were just like, well, just go sit in hot water every day for months. Sometimes people were really would end up sitting in those baths until they died because it was essentially, there was no cure for what they had. This right, was just right. Shot in the dark and it becomes kind of a convalescence kind of thing where they're just bathing every, but because that prescription was always sort of open-ended and people would be in these baths for months at a time, a resort grows around it because you need, Hotels, you need restaurants, you know, because people were coming here from all over the yeah. country, all over the world to do this. And so that's why Hot Springs was sort of born. And I think I mentioned in the book that that history is not unique to Hot Springs. There are spa towns, so to, so-called spa towns all over the world. There are lots of places like Baden-Baden and Carlsbad and Monte Carlo and places around the world where there are hot springs and then there are these kind of resorts where those hot springs are. Even to this day, we, don't, we no longer believe that these springs have the power, but we still go there and visit these places because the communities grew back during that period of time and um, catered to tourists. I think you mentioned in the book that even Capone went there. He famously had syphilis and he heard it was a cure. Yeah, he treated his syphilis in hot springs, but um, he, he was a he was a very frequent visitor to hot springs and uh, he and his brother and his sort of whole crew, um, there's a lot of stories of them spending a lot of time there. And he was very involved in local politics in Hot Springs and uh, really kept kind of kept close tabs while he was alive on what was happening in Hot Springs. So he really, I think, saw Hot Springs as kind of one of his towns. Um, there's even an assassination attempt on Capone in Hot Springs while he's there at one point. So, yeah, Al Capone. If you go there today, there are statues of Al Capone. Really? There's a lot of, like, Al Capone, like... Uh, stuff in, in uh, places that are called like Big Al's and stuff like that. Um, and uh, when I was in high school, I, I was a host at a restaurant in the Arlington Hotel. And I, I, there was a table next to the kitchen that nobody wanted to sit in. It's the worst table in the, in the whole dining room. And so I was instructed that whenever I had to sit someone at that table to tell them that that was Al Capone's favorite table. Because then they'd feel a little better about sitting in the shittiest table <laughs> in, the, in the restaurant. And I always felt so bad doing it. One time a guy went and got a fedora and a cigar and made me take his picture sitting in Al Capone's chair. I just felt so guilty oh. doing it. But, but Al Capone lore is a big, today's day is a big part of the sort of tourist you know, shtick in Hot Springs. That's something that surprised me. Well, let me backtrack that for a second. I didn't know much about Hot Springs at all or this story. Mm-hmm. But I'm reading through this and that, yeah, Capone. You mentioned Lucky Luciano was like laying low in Hot Springs when he, when the uh, NYPD was trying to get him for um, a prostitution ring, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Frank Costello, like, uh, and, and I'm going to get into like McClellan and all that, but these are like really big names and right. probably big names because they've been shown on small and big screen. Um, but like, why do you think that Hot Springs and, and this story in particular hasn't received as much attention as a setting for like, you know, mob activity versus a New York or a Chicago? Well, because Hot Springs didn't want to. Mm. I mean, it was, I think that the reason, look, I mean, when I first sold this book, this is sort of the reaction everybody had was, how could the story be true? How could the story be true? And I never have heard this before, mm. right? If this was true, wouldn't we all know this? I mean, these are the biggest, some of the biggest names in American politics and American uh, sports, uh, entertainment, and in organized crime are all connected to this city. You know, this city was like, I mean, they looked for Jimmy Hoffa in Hot Springs. Mm -hmm. You know, like the Warren Commission investigated the JFK assassination in Hot Springs. Like Hot Springs is connected to all this stuff. People are saying, why did I not know this? And the reason that you don't know it is because Hot Springs didn't want you to know it. In the, in the years after gambling finally gets shut down in Hot Springs, and I'm not talking, you know, what makes Hot Springs unique is that gambling outlasted every other, you know, there used to be a lot of towns like Hot Springs. Mm. There used to be, kind of ga illegal gambling towns all over America. In 1950, Hot Springs was not a unique place. But by 1965, there's nothing but Hot Springs. There's Las Vegas and Hot Springs, and that's it. Because of the Warren Commission? Yeah, well, yeah. Be not be the Warren Commission investigated the Kennedy assassination, but the McClellan... McClellan, right, right, right. Before that, the Confabric Committee. Yes, the Department of Justice went sort of around, barnstormed around the country shutting down gambling towns one after the other because they knew that gambling was the business that fueled organized crime, and organized crime was corrupting every level of American life. So to stop the mob, they had to stop gambling. So they do this from town to town. They shut down all these illegal gambling. They never did it in Hot Springs. Hot Springs grew as every other town shut down. Mm. And that's why in the, in the early 1960s, Hot Springs is huge. It's really at its apex. Once they, sh they don't really completely shut Hot Springs down until about, you know, 68, 69. And uh, I talk about this in the book a little bit. The, you know, this is the election of Rockefeller, you know, of Winthrop Rockefeller to the governor of Arkansas. That's a major event. You know, this is a Republican governor of Arkansas, the first Republican governor of Arkansas since Reconstruction. He is the, uh, he's from New York, you know. Mm -hmm. so this was a, a major event in Arkansas when he gets elected and he finally shuts it down. Well, once he gets shut down, Hot Springs does everything they can to reinvent themselves as a wholesome uh, Christian family resort. And so these casinos are long, the casinos are gone and they're replaced with things like wax museums and uh, educated animal zoo and, uh, and uh, passion play, like religious passion play or like a, mm. an amusement park. And they want church groups to come there. A lot like what we think of Branson, Missouri today is what Hot Springs aspired to be in the 1970s and into the 1980s. And so Hot Springs desperately wanted to wash themselves of this criminal, sinful association with gambling and to embrace this culture that was sweeping across the South of kind of evangelical Christianity and kind of wholesome family values. And they wanted to be a part of that. And so that meant not only are we going to get rid of the gambling, we're not even going to talk about it. I mean, I grew up in the 1980s. I had friends whose families were connected to the gambling business, but they didn't talk about it. They, you know, I knew friends that had like craps tables and slot machines in their attic underneath a sheet. You weren't supposed to even look at it. It was like a taboo thing. And like, you know, if we would go up there as little kids out of curiosity and peek at it, the parents would get so mad, you know, I was like, get away from there. You're not supposed to look at that. So there was definitely this sense of we have to, we don't want to lean into this. We want to lean away from it. Mm. I mean, contrast that to Las Vegas where there is a statue of Benny Binion in downtown Las Vegas. Benny Binion was a terrible person, right? He was a, a, a very violent and vicious man and they built a statue of him. They leaned into their association with sort of outlaw American, uh, mm. you know, figures uh, who were the founding fathers of that town. Hot Springs definitely didn't. And so a lot of this history was, they'd made a lot, it was a, a, an effort to obscure it and hide it. And, it. and as I grew up, I mean, people that live there today who've lived there their whole lives read my book and were like, I never knew any of this stuff. Right, they grew up there their whole lives. They never knew. Yeah. So even being in Hot Springs, you only kind of knew a, a piece of the story. We only kind of knew the mythology that existed, the oral sort of stories that were passed down from one generation to the next. But we didn't know the real story because it was all hidden away. You know, it was never really told. So that's why. And I hope this book does something to 
kind of put Hot Springs back in what I think is its rightful place in the um, in that canon of kind of mid-century uh, American kind of history of organized crime and history of gambling. Because you'll see in the book that Hot Springs plays a really an international role in this stuff, right? I mean, after the revolution in Cuba, Castro sends for, you know, some people from Hot Springs are flying to Cuba as his guest and they're staying in the, you know, in the Havana Hilton to check out the casinos and see how things are going and report back to the Hot Springs gambling leaders about it. I mean, these are players, you know? And they and nobody knows that this was such an important piece of this rich history of you know the mob and the and, and gambling in America that is so well told, but Hot Springs is not really a part of that story, unfortunately. I'm going to come back to some of those major players. I teased it before, but uh, knowing what you just said, as I'm reading this, I'm like, man, this is incredibly well researched. There are a lot of people in here. <laughs> there's a lot, like you mentioned, there's a lot of people connected to Arkansas. Being that people or some people maybe didn't want this story to get out, how difficult was it to research and how long did this take you? It took me five years wow. to write this, to research and write this book. And it was tough. And people, there were people who didn't want to, didn't want to talk to me on the record or didn't want their name in the book. There was still this kind of really ridiculous fear that existed in Hot Springs among a certain generation of people that you shouldn't talk about these things. That still existed, although that's, you know, on the wane. You know, I mean, that that as as a whole as a generation sort of passes on, uh, I think there's a new generation that doesn't see this as being uh, an embarrassment or shocking or something that they should be ashamed of, and they see it as cool and novel and interesting, and they want to know more about it. Now you see that the leaders in Hot Springs are embracing this. You know, there's gambling museums in Hot Springs. There's uh, there's a lot more, you know, the, the local historical society is much more, has a lot more now on the sort of gangster history in the town than ever before. Mm. So I think there's a recognition that like, this is a curious, this is something people are curious about. It'll bring visitors to the town and um, it's just unique. It's not anything that, it's not, you know, learning this stuff and kind of uh, talking about it doesn't mean that you're sort of condoning um, criminal behavior or whatever, or violence. It just means that it's 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 what happened. It's the history, and and people are interested in it. It's an it's it's an interesting part of American history. Really, it's not unique to Hot Springs. That's what I think Hot Springs. I think folks need to realize is that all of America was corrupted by organized crime. You know, by 1960, you know, it was at every level of public life. And, you know, there was there was organized crime, and so Hot Springs was just a part of that. You know, it wasn't the only place that this was happening. But to answer your question about how about the research I did, most of the the really good stuff that I got that I think really helped me crack the story open in a way that even local historians had ever seen was that I was able to get my hands on, you know, FBI and Department of Justice mm. files that had never really been seen before, and getting to look at some of these files that, you know, I think local there was a lot of local historians and a lot of people in Hot Springs who've done a lot. I mean, a, a an incredible amount of study and research into this history, but they really relied on local sources, you know what I mean? Local newspapers, local court records. And I think what I was able to add to that work that they've all done is to go out and look at FBI files, court records, and the like outside of Hot Springs. You know, it was, it was, that was what really cracked this for me, was, the, uh, was realizing that, that the story of Hot Springs was being told all over America, mm. not just in Arkansas. So going to places like the National Archives, going to look at um, court records or FBI records in places like Kansas City or Las Vegas or Los Angeles or New York, and seeing that people there were discussing the events in Hot Springs too, and sometimes much more candidly than the people were discussing them in Arkansas, um, helped me kind of tell the sort of zoom out from the local from Hot Springs and tell the the complete story, right? That zooming out and showing the national picture put what was happening in Hot Springs into a broader context and I think made it more, made it, made people realize how it was much more important than they maybe thought. Are you able to access uh, those FBI files because of like a Freedom of Information Act type of a request? Yes, I did. And that's the thing that, one of many things that made this take so long was that it took three <laughs> years for me to get my, F, my FOIA request FOIA. from the FBI. Wow. Yeah. And even then they kind of came in dribs and drabs, you know, it would, they'd send me kind of 50 pages at a time or like uh you know, I, I would just sort of receive them in clumps. I'll still, I still get them. 
I, I don't even have all the files I requested. You know, I just had to start writing at some point and recognize that, like, that I'd be waiting until the 12th of never for all these files. And to this day, stuff shows up in my inbox or in my mailbox that the FBI is still sending me, and I just don't even want to open it because it's like my worst fear is that I'll open it and something good will be in there. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've already written the book. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to sound corny or like hyperbolic, but like, is there any danger in, do, in, in doing this type of research? You mean from the, from the mob? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean... I think I might have pissed off some local families in Hot Springs who feel like now that in the book their family members are sort of seen seen and identified as like being involved in things that they didn't know they were involved in. Mm. I bet some people are angry about that. But I don't think that any of these people are dangerous. I don't think that the uh the gangsters that I write about in the book are dangerous, you know, and they're all gone they're all dead anyway. Right. <laughs> so no, I don't think there's any real danger to me. Uh, you know, organized crime as it exists in America today is not, you know, is, is a, you know, not even a 10th of the strength or power that they had in this time this book was written. And, uh, and I don't think they much care. I think that they probably mm. like, you know, I think people who are, who I mentioned in this book probably like that it's been written. I mean, I'll give you an example. I, there was a, there's a guy in the book, Harry Hastings, right? He's a, um, a little rock, He's a very powerful person in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was a uh, um, kind of a, um, a businessman who ran a lot of liquor distribution and a lot of other... He had, a, he had his fingers in a lot of stuff. But he also was involved in a lot of crime. He was considered kind of the crime boss of Arkansas. You know, he, if you were going to do any kind of like smuggling or any kind of like nefarious stuff in Arkansas, you had to basically, whatever, kiss Harry Hastings ring, right? And uh, people in Arkansas have always known a little bit about him, but... And his family is still very powerful. He, the Hastings family still have a lot of clout in Arkansas. Anyway, one of the one of the grandchildren or whatever in this family came to one of my readings and talked to me afterwards. And he seemed to think it was very cool that in the book I talk about his grandfather <laughs> killing people. And I was nervous about this. I thought that like that family would think this would bring shame on their family, but they don't. They know. But I think this is a generation. You're on two generations on now, and they're like, yeah, my granddaddy shot some folks. That doesn't mean I'm going to shoot anybody, but mm. you know what I mean? I think that maybe it's a little bit kind of cool to say that your grandfather was some sort of outlaw criminal. I don't know. It's a lot. I think we're, I think that that distance, you know what I mean? Like maybe if it was your father, it'd be different. You know, maybe if, 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 if people were still alive, right. it'd be different. But I think that maybe there's just a different, this generation has a different relationship towards that generation and they're willing to maybe be more open and honest about some of the stuff those folks had to do to get business done back then. You know, it was just a different time. Some of those smaller characters and sort of like tangential stories were some of my favorite parts of the book. Uh-huh. Uh, I wrote this down in my notes and then, of course, in my haste to run over here from the wrong, from the wrong direction, I left the book in the car. <laughs> but I believe it was Sam Orlick Harris mm-hmm. who worked at the Black Cat liquor store. And... I wrote it down as page 65 in the paperback, but he was smuggling liquor into a prison. Yeah. Was that him? Yeah. That Just those small little stories in there. I'm like, wow, you could have a whole book just about this. I know. I know. I, I had written that. Some of those anecdotes, I had written a lot more and I had to edit them down, you know, but I found that story about Sam <clears throat> in a newspaper, right? So that wasn't even like an apocryphal story. That wasn't even a story that was like told to me by his relatives. I found that story and shared it with his relatives, and they had never heard it before. No you know? way. But it was written about in the newspaper, and Sam, uh, he broke, he took orders from the guys in the jail, and then he bro- they were able to break into the jail, bring in the booze, and get out of the jail. <laughs> and the prisoners all stayed in the jail. <laughs> you know, the guy, the Sam came in and out. But uh, this was Dane Harris's dad. Yeah. And um, I thought that was a very cool story, too. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff like that. You know, honestly, this book, the editors really had to make me kill my darlings. It was a much longer book originally, and it was a worse book because every time I'd find an interesting story like that, I would kind of go, I would tell the whole story, you know? So the book kind of got, it would get far afield from the narrative, you know what I mean? And it became this kind of like, uh, in the early versions of the book, it was this kind of like... Um, it was just sort of a collection of these kind of these interest these interesting little anecdotes or 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 um or just a bunch of scenes and stories kind of stitched together without like you know without any uh, adherence to the narrative mm. the arc of the characters. 
And so I really had some help from editors who were like, look, you know, we have three main characters here. We have to tell their stories. If you get too far afield from one of these three main characters, you got to reel it back in, right? You can't, you know, as you're writing, if you, if, if, if I'm writing and I'm writing and I go off in another direction because I, because maybe Hazel meets this person and then that person does this and then that person, you know, and then I'm, and I keep following, I'm like, oh, but this is so interesting what they end up doing. They steal a car, they throw it in the lake, they kill a guy. They're like, yeah, but you've <laughs> left Hazel behind, you know, 15 pages ago. You got to come back. You can't, you know, you can't just chase every rabbit that comes across the trail. So there's a lot of good stuff that didn't make it into the book. That's why I hope they make a TV show because there's a lot of stuff really that's left to tell. That, And I tell folks in Hot Springs this all the time. I'm like, this isn't a comprehensive history of Hot Springs. This is just the story. These three, it's not even a comprehensive story of these three people's lives. It's just a narrative about this period of time in these three, these three people's lives and how they intersect in the end. Have you had any interest in a, in a show or a movie? Yeah, I optioned it for a TV show. Oh, that's awesome. And they've written a script and really? you know, I'm hopeful that it'll get made because if they make it, you know, I, I gave them all my files, you know, and, uh, and I've had a lot of meetings with them and told them a lot of the stories that I wish were in the book. Mm. One particular aspect of the book that got kind of left out that I hope we can, if they make a TV show that we can really center, is the story of Black Broadway and the story of the African-American community in Hot Springs, which, because my three main characters were all white, they each of them shows up on that side of town and each of them interacts with, um, you know, black folks in hot springs at different times. But because of this kind of like adherence I had to have to my narrative, there were a lot of great stories that I learned and read about that I couldn't really, you know, that I couldn't go 20 pages deep on. So I feel like that's a place that I, I feel like we hopefully can explore more if there's an opportunity to deep, dive deeper into the story because for obvious reasons. I mean, it's a part of Hot Springs history that doesn't, that is still, you know, not been told often enough. And, uh, and because, uh, there's some really cool stuff that happens, you know, on the, on the black side of town. If I'm recalling this correctly, um, obviously, well, when has there not been racial tensions in this country, but, you know, we're talking about civil rights era. If I recall correctly, Hot Springs itself was, more progressive than the rest of like the conservative state around it. It was. And, you know, and that's not to pat it on the back too hard Mm. because clearly there was still segregation uh, and there was still racism in Hot Springs. But relative to the rest of Arkansas, it was definitely one of the most progressive cities in Arkansas. And I back that up in the book by talking about how, you know, after the Brown decision, there's only eight school districts in the state of Arkansas that voluntarily integrate um, every other school district in the state follows the governor's lead and says, Governor Faubison says, we're never going to integrate. You can mm. send the army in here, and we, you know, which they literally did. You know, They were like, send the army in if you want because we're never going to do it. But eight school districts did, and Hot Springs was one of them. Uh, Hot Springs had um, segregation, but because of the gambling business, well, the first thing people need to understand is that there were a lot of African-Americans that lived in Hot Springs who moved there from other places, Mm. which made Hot Springs unique and different from the rest of the state. Because this was a community that had not uh, sort of been a part of, they were not Arkansans that had always lived in Arkansas, and particularly in, you know, in eastern Arkansas where there was cotton and there was a lot of agriculture that, that slaves were a part of. These were people that moved to Hot Springs from other places, sometimes from the north, sometimes from big cities, wow. because they wanted to work in the, in the hospitality industry. They wanted to, they were musicians, they were dancers, they were singers, they were people that, they were chefs, they were uh, porters, you know, dishwashers. Um, they gave people massages, they bathed people and were bathhouse attendants. They came to Hot Springs because they recognized that this was a place where they could get a decent job, they could work in the hospitality industry, where they wouldn't be dealing with, you know, a bunch of, like, redneck crackers, but they'd be dealing with visitors who were coming from all over the world, right? And... Have money to spend, right? Right. And so what grows in Hot Springs is a black middle class and a black professional class around that. So there's thousands, and, you know, there's like 8,000 residents in this 30,000-person city that are black, which is far higher than the, you know, than the, uh, than the number of African-Americans that lived in other cities in Arkansas. And there were black lawyers and doctors. There was a, there were, there was a black hospital, and there were black hotels, and there were black-owned businesses. And, you know, there's this thing, the Green Book, which I guess is much more, people know about, more about now because of the movie. But Hot Springs was in the Green Book. It was a place that was in the Green Book as a place that, that um, black people traveling through 
segregated in the Jim Crow South could come and stay in a hotel and eat a meal. And, not, and, and it would tell you, you know, you can go to Hot Springs, you don't have to worry about, you know, being run out of town on a rail or whatever. So Hot Springs definitely was more progressive in that sense, too, in that even though it was segregated, the black community in Hot Springs had a lot of, they had money and they had some, and most importantly, this is the most important point that I make in the book, is that the reason that this existed was because they had political power. And the reason that the black community had political power in Hot Springs was that political elections in Hot Springs were incredibly high stakes affairs. Who got elected to office got to decide who got to run a gambling franchise, which was the whole business in the town. And so in the old days when Leo McLaughlin was mayor, in the early parts of the book, he rigged all the elections. So during those periods of time, black, the black community didn't matter at all because all the elections were rigged. But once these GIs come back from World War II and they break that corruption and they force real, actual fair elections in Hot Springs, suddenly black voters in Hot Springs became incredibly important because uh, winning the second ward, the black community in Hot Springs, meant winning the election. And so anybody who could convince that block of voters to vote for them would win. So... Here we see a period of time where all over the rest of the state of Arkansas, all over the rest of the South, black people were being discouraged from voting, being threatened with violence if they voted, um, being you know driven away from the polls with things like poll taxes and and citizen mm. and tests that they had to take, and a lot of times just out and out violence if they tried to vote. I mean, people died in the South trying to register people to vote during this same period of time in Hot Springs the white political establishment were having parties in the black community, literally throwing massive parties and like giving away drawings and food to people. And they were campaigning actively for the black vote. They were registering people to vote. They wanted them to vote for them desperately. So there was political agency that existed in Hot Springs that existed nowhere else. And so the black community felt very involved and engaged in this process. And we see in the book, what happens is that when there is violence brought against the black community, when the Roanoke Baptist Church, a black church, is bombed, the black community in Hot Springs really wrestles with, should we call the FBI or not? Mm. Because we know that this was a bombing. The local cops won't do nothing about it. But if we call the FBI in here, the FBI will shut all this gambling down and we will lose our power. We will lose our um, sort of small slice of political agency, the, the little bit that we have. If this gambling goes away, nobody needs our votes anymore. Nobody's going to come over, come a courting for us. And so that was, was a tough thing that they had to reckon, that they were reckoning with at that moment about what do we do? And I, I quote in the book, these sort of op-eds from the black um, newspaper there at the time where they're sort of wrestling with what do we do here? It was a really tough decision about, do we just let them blow up our fucking churches or do we call the FBI and risk losing what, what, what little bit we have? So, so the, so the hot springs, the story of, of, and when I say the reason I'm saying Black Broadway, that was sort of the the name for that side of town. Malvern Avenue was called Black Broadway because there were all these clubs and casinos that were black owned and black run, where a lot of major artists came through and performed um, during that period of time. And it was one place where white people would come into the you know the white people in Hot Springs and white people visitors would come over to the black part of town to come to these clubs to see BB King, to see Ray Charles, to see you know Duke Ellington because these were larger-than-life stars who were performing on the other side of the tracks in Hot Springs. That's why that place has such historical significance, too. But this is stuff that I think I get into a little bit in the book, but I think there's just such, so much more to the story about the African-American community in Hot Springs. Yeah, and there are, there are other cities that have either, like, a street or an arts area or, like, a slice of the city that had a similar story, and there was a concerted effort to... Uh, through various political techniques, kind of destroy those businesses. So that's a that's a really fascinating story, right? And it was all very tenuous mm. because it only could exist. This situation could only exist so long as gambling was illegal and the political elections mattered. And what's interesting is there were other people in Hot Springs that were worried about the same thing for less good reasons, but 
there were political leaders in Hot Springs who never wanted gambling to be legalized in Arkansas because this was Dane Harris's whole mission in the book is he's trying to legalize gambling. Well, there's some folks in Hot Springs who wanted to keep it illegal mm. because if gambling is now legal in Arkansas, getting elected to be dog catcher in Hot Springs no longer mattered. Being a county clerk or uh, whatever, you know, all those people, those goofy little positions mattered a lot, were worth a lot of money and power because any one person in government could shut down gambling. So there were a lot of local political hacks that were like, I don't ever want this shit to be legal. I want it to stay illegal forever so that I can get my slice of the pie. Once right. this becomes legal, they're going to cut me out. So there was a lot of people in Hot Springs that were like, maybe let's keep it illicit. And that's, a, that's kind of a strange, you know, dynamic as well. Yeah, I won't go off on too much of a tangent, but like these things don't change. They just sort of like morph in form. I mean, if we look at Congress people today right. and you're like, how are you worth $30 million when that's what your salary is? Like, mm. But yeah. Um, right. right. Okay. I, I'm fascinated by all the McClellan stuff in this uh-huh. book. Um, I'm sure at some point, like I knew that he had been a senator in Arkansas, but his connection to some of these major players and his uh, potential tipping them off, I found super fascinating. Um, even to where he was kind of protecting Oni for a while, and then Oni goes on trial before the committee, mm-hmm. and they're on the same plane on the way home shaking hands. Yeah. How did you find that story? That story was in um, a book that a British journalist wrote about Oni back in the 80s. There was a British journalist who was very curious about Oni because he came from Leeds. He was, you know, Oni was a British citizen originally. He came over to New York, immigrated to New York, and became a leader of the mob in the early days of kind of of, um, New York City, but um, of, of, you know, gangs in New York City. Hmm. But uh, this journalist traveled to Hot Springs in the 80s when Agnes, Oni's wife, was still alive. And he was able to get her to sit with him, and he she gave him access to her diaries her, or her journal or whatever, a lot of her correspondence, and she did interviews with him. And I'm pretty sure that story came from something that she told him. It was in his book. Um, but yeah, McClellan, you know, one of the things that's interesting, it's not just McClellan at this time, Wilbur Mills, who is like the most powerful person, Democrat in Congress is from Arkansas. Uh, you know, you've got Fulbright. I mean, Arkansas has always punched well above its weight mm. in Washington, D.C. Or not anymore, but it did for a long time. And uh, all the way up to Bill Clinton, right? And so McCle- McClellan, Senator McClellan, is a very powerful person in Washington, D.C., and he's a senator from Arkansas, sitting senator, senator in Arkansas. And he is the man who is tasked with taking on organized crime, corruption, and uh, in labor unions and taking on the gambling business around the country. And he's the one that's leading the charge to shut down illegal gambling all over America. Meanwhile, in his own home state, there's this giant out in the open illegal gambling kind of capital. And after a while, people start to get real pissed about this. And what I found was on wiretaps around the country was mobsters all over America on the phone, just bitching and moaning about this, about how can he, how come nobody's asking him about Hot Springs? Why is Hot Springs getting a pass? And they're just sort of bemoaning, like, well, it's, that's how it works. He's, he's protecting Hot Springs. And it was really annoying to a lot of gangsters in big cities that this was happening. People did ask him a lot of tough questions. There was Drew Pearson, who was a, uh, a very influential kind of uh, D.C., um, columnist, right? Like uh, 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 he wrote a column where he kind of gabbed a lot about um, the, you know, what was going on in Capitol Hill. And Drew Pearson would he wrote about uh, quite a bit about how is McClellan? Isn't McClellan a hypocrite that he never talks about Hot Springs? People would bring this up, and McClellan, you know, he had a pretty, you know, he would always say like, "Hey, if somebody, if one of our witnesses brings up Hot Springs, we'll talk about Hot Springs." You know, it's not coming, and then and then it would come up, and then when it would come up, he would just sort of, you know, move the conversation away from it or whatever. There's even stories of him coaching people. So Joe Valachi, you know, this is one of the stories I didn't put in the book because Joe Valachi was the guy who, the first kind of Italian gangster to really kind of turn states and really mm-hmm. spill the beans about whatever about the mafia, and Joe Valachi ended up becoming a minor celebrity because he was willing to tell 
you know, he wrote a book or whatever, and he kind of told the government and then later reporters or whatever, all the secret ins and outs of the mafia. And some historians in organized crime doubt some of, some of the things that Valachi said and think that he might have exaggerated some things. So I, I didn't put this in the book, but Valachi, if, if you want to believe Joe Valachi, he claims that he was told by Senator McClellan before he went on the stand to not mention Hot Springs. I might, maybe I did put it in the book, but Valachi says that McClellan told him in private before his testimony, listen, don't, don't mention Hot Springs. You could see it, though. Like, as I'm reading this, I was thinking, like, oh, come on, this is so obvious. How is no one going after this guy? Yeah. But, I mean, probably, you know, it's revisionist history. People would look back on now and say that about a lot of people who are in positions of power now and be like, well, that seems so obvious. But um, <laughs> Well, what is true is that I, there, in recordings that I have transcripts of that were recorded in Dane's office by microphones in his office that he is sitting in his office. He talks about McClellan openly as being their guy mm. and what all do we have to do for him. They, they say, oh, we got to buy McClellan's wife a car. Somebody, you know, go get this Buick for McClellan's wife. You know, he wants a car for his wife. And then when McClellan wrote a book called um, Crime Without Punishment was the title of his book. He wrote yes, a book. Yes, 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 yes. Which is such a great title. Uh, <laughs> Dane is in his office talking to guys. He's like, now McClellan says we got to go out and buy. We, we you know, we we bought fifteen thousand copies of his damn book. What are we going to do with them? And they're like, I don't know. We got to store them somewhere. They're like sitting in a storage room in the vapors, in a storage room. All these books that they bought just to help get McClellan's book on the bestseller list or something, or maybe to line his pockets or whatever. So McClellan was definitely in like Flynn with these guys. You know, they he, and and. And I think he was protecting them as much as he could. And Oni donated to his campaign and, you know, written him checks and stuff. And that had gotten him so far. But when Oni finally does end up having to testify, it's because the thing that the event that happens that 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 finally forces McClellan's hand that McClellan has to put Oni on the stand. Sorry about that. That's our. No, no, that's OK. That's our fire department. We still have that old school uh, fire horn. I like it. Um the thing that the event that finally causes uh, uh, McClellan to call in a stand is that Bobby Kennedy goes before Congress, stands before Congress, and gives testimony. And he says to Congress, "We need to change the laws in this country so that we can stop guys like Oni Madden in Hot Springs, Arkansas, from flaunting the law." And he tells a whole story about Oni flying to Chicago to ask Curly Humphreys to murder Joe Pareto to protect his gambling business in Hot Springs. And so when Bobby Kennedy tells this story to Congress, then all McClellan's like, well, shit, now I got to put him on the stand. And so he puts McClellan, he puts Oney and, uh, and Jimmy Pro on the stand and grills him. And he w did not want to do that, but he had to. The Kennedy connection is another one I found fascinating in this story. Um, so Lee Harvey Oswald kills or allegedly kills Kennedy. Uh -huh. uh, likely most people know Jack Ruby kills Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby, uh, mob connections. This is where I'm going to fall apart, so I need your help. But okay. he was connected to Dane somehow, right? Well, so, yeah, they're connected. To, everybody's connected to everybody. But Dane, Dane's connection is, I think, a fun one. But Jack Ruby, the guy who killed um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who clearly assassinated him for the mob to shut him up, Jack Ruby is connected to all kinds of nefarious characters, right? And Ruby, the story is that when Ruby was arrested, he had a, a phone number in his pocket, and the pocket was for this guy named R.D. Matthews. And R.D. Matthews was like this well-known kind of hitman in Texas, right? He was like a bad dude. Well, at the time, so then the FBI go looking into R.D. Matthews. Who's this guy? Who's this guy that Ruby's got his number in his pocket? So they go looking through all R.D. Matthews' phone records. Well, then they find Dane, because Dane's been... Colin, Dane's been all over Texas trying to track Artie Matthews down. He's looking for Artie. He's, he's, and Artie Matthews is hiding from Dane and running, you know, he's, he's, he's stay, you know, kind of, uh, ducking him everywhere he goes. So there, so Dane's traveling to Texas looking for him and Artie Matthews. So the FBI wanted to know what is happening here. They went and questioned Dane. They also questioned, uh, Jack Packus, who ran the Southern Club Casino in Hot Springs. And Jack Packus and Ruby were friends and they talked on the phone and Ruby hung out in the Southern Club a lot. And so uh, I think they wanted to talk to Packus because Ruby had maybe recently been at the Southern Club or something like that. So they, they, they came in and interviewed him as well. But the, um, the funny thing about R.D. Matthews and some of these other guys like, um, what was the guy's name? J Jim, uh, 
Oh, Lord. Dolan. Jim Dolan. They called him Doc. Jim Dolan, who's also connected to Jack Ruby because they both worked for... Jim Dolan worked for the um, um, the union that represented basically strippers and variety artists. It was a mobbed-up union, and Dolan was the union rep. But Dolan was a big-time con artist and criminal and, you know, kind of whatever, like bag man. And he... Uh, he basically used the, the union was a way to shake down clubs. You know, there wasn't really a union for strippers. They were just going to strip clubs and say, you got to pay mm. or we're going to, you know, or we're going to shut you down. Well, you know, Dolan repped, I think, Ruby's club. And he also, you know, hung out in Hot Springs a lot and hung out with a, a kind of a shady cast of characters in Hot Springs, including my grandmother. And they, so all these, all these folks who are kind of in the middle of this conspiracy to kill the president are all hanging out in Hot Springs, right? And so that, I thought, was very um, very interesting, even though it, these are threads that don't lead anywhere, right? But I will tell you this story. One of the guys that I interviewed for the book was, this ch- was the son of one of the major characters in the book. And he told me a story about how the day after Kennedy was assassinated, he and the other some of the other children of some of the major gambling leaders in Hot Springs all kind of met up in the hallway in the high school that day and they were like, do you think our dads had anything to do with this? No way. Yeah. Like they were worried that maybe they're there because they knew that their parents hated Kennedy, hated Bobby Kennedy, and were concerned about Hot Springs getting shut down by federal probes into the rackets. So they were concerned about it. Uh, so that's just something about how much, you know, Hot Springs was kind of wired into all this stuff. But yeah, they came through, they came through to investigate the assassination. What I don't get into in the book is, but I think it's still equally interesting is that Maybe 10 years later, you know, Jimmy Hoffa disappears. And the main, I don't know if you've ever watched the movie The Irishman. And read the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in The Irishman, you know, so Chucky, the guy, Chucky was the uh, uh, FBI's main suspect from the beginning. They thought this is, because he was the the last guy that Hoffa was in the car with, right? And so. He was the the son, right? Well, he's not his biological son. Right. But he was sort of a a surrogate, you know, or he was a sort of a... um, you know, he treated him like a yeah, son, okay. right? And so that was their main suspect that they went after. Well, they immediately knew after Hoffa disappeared that they wanted to talk to him. So they were like, well, where is he? Well, he was in Hot Springs, Arkansas. No. And that's where they found him. He was hiding out in a hotel in Hot Springs with his wife. And they ended up coming to Hot Springs and digging up out by the lake and excavating a lot of places looking for him off of tips that they got. And they interviewed a bunch of people. One of the people that they interviewed in, in the Hoffa investigation, and I saw this um, transcript of this interview, was a pilot who said that he flew on the day of Hoffa's disappearance from Hot Springs, Arkansas, the airport in Hot Springs, to Detroit and back on the same day. And so they wanted to interview him about what he was doing. So there's a lot of like, you know, and, 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 and the reason that people in Hot Springs will tell you that they're, the reason that the FBI thought there might be animus towards Hoffa in Hot Springs is that a lot of people in Hot Springs to this day blame Hoffa for what happened in Hot Springs. They think Hoffa was the reason Mm. because the Teamsters were so invested in Las Vegas. And I think that there's real credibility to this theory that, that, that Hoffa and the Teamsters Union really put their thumb on the scale for Rockefeller to get elected governor. They were big supporters of Nelson Rockefeller in New York. And that Hoffa and um, the Teamsters Union they had purchased some property in Hot Springs anticipating the gambling might get legal. The Teamsters Pension Fund owned a couple of big hotels that they thought they would turn into casinos. But in the end, they decided Las Vegas is where it's going to be. So that's where they put the lion's share of their investments. So they had a real interest in Hot Springs getting shut down. And so there's even Dane Harris. Dane Harris believed before he died that Hoffa was the guy that really screwed him. It wasn't the guys blowing up the vapors. It was Hoffa for helping Rockefeller get elected. And so... That's why people thought maybe guys on Hot Springs wanted to see Hoffa dead. So Actually, I had that in the back of my mind to ask you about the Irishman. And through your work, uh, not just on the book, but all of your work like in this world, do you have a particular take on Kennedy and potential like <laughs> government or CIA connection to that? I do. You know, I fell down that rabbit hole pretty hard while I was researching the book. And the reason I did was because when I went looking for... So initially, I go looking for these files and information about... Um, the connections that these characters had to the Kennedy assassination. What I found was that the researchers who are obsessed with the Kennedy assassination have just a treasure trove of documents and research that they've done over 
many decades. And so going through their archives, I found a lot of stuff that was useful to my book um, that wasn't useful to what they were doing, looking at, but I found a lot of files. See, what for somehow, some, some, somehow JFK assassination researchers have a lot of unredacted FBI files. I got my hands on a lot of redacted stuff, and then suddenly I was finding in the files of um, JFK research organizations unredacted files. So I spent a lot of time on a lot of, in a lot of databases and on a lot of websites of JFK obsessives. And I kind of became a little bit of one too myself where I found this, I could see why it was also titillating to them. And I, it was fun to kind of connect all the dots and, you know, read all these, you know, documents from another time. And what's kind of fascinating about FBI documents is that so many of them are like transcripts of wiretaps. So it does feel like you're, eaves, you, you, mm. you're eavesdropping on a conversation that happened whatever, 40, 50 years ago that you weren't supposed to hear. And there's just something kind of titillating about that too, about reading through these files. It's not like reading a bunch of like reports. You're reading people, you know, you're reading like a screenplay almost, you know? And I found that to, I could see why that's fun, you know, to... Do you think the truth to that ever comes out? About the Kennedy assassination? I don't, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, in some ways I think the truth is already out. It's just a matter of whether people will accept it, right? I mean, we know so much. Um... I, you know, whether we'll ever know definitively, probably not, because that would require, that would mean that somewhere someone in the government wrote down what definitively happened and hid it away. There are a lot of files that are still locked away from us that we can't see, mm. which I think is, that in and of itself is like a red flag. Like, that should tell people, like, there's something in there <laughs> that's bad. Why are they, why would they hide it for 75 years? Why would they say we can't read it for 75 years? It's because it's they want every fucking person to be dead before we get to see the truth. So we know there's something in there that's wild. What it is, I don't know. Because they just opened up a bunch of them and they still classified some of them. So I think there might be stuff that's in there that's going to be good, but I don't think that anybody in the... If, if there was this big conspiracy to kill the president, I don't know that there's going to be like a, a piece of paper that sort of spells it all out. I think we do have to kind of connect the dots and that's part of what makes it kind of fun for people. Yeah. It's strange because no one wants to like be labeled as like a tin hat, you know, conspiracy person, but they're like... <laughs> It's kind of a thin line between like how bizarre our history actually is and like then believing in like lizard people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. And one of the things I tell myself all the time is like whenever I get too dismissive in a knee jerk way against any conspiracy theory, I remember that like, you know, that this happened, right? That the president was killed. The president of the United States was assassinated and that the entire American public was sold this story that was so obviously bullshit. Nobody, Mm. look, more people today believe that Oswald was this lone shooter than believed it then. Like more, the majority yeah. of Americans did not believe it. And they had all these opinion polls where people were like completely skeptical of the government story and of what the Warren Commission. So there was a lot of America. The American public was much more skeptical then. There was a lot more of sort of conspiracy type thinking back then. Right. But you got to remember the time that we were in. We had already, we had just learned about, you know, this is around the time that we learned about Cointelpro yeah. and MKUltra. These are real things. To us, we read about those things. They happened so long ago that it's like, yeah, that happened then, but we don't, you know, maybe they don't do that kind of shit anymore. But to the people in the late 60s, these are things happening right now. The FBI was so, and the CIA were so, nef- were so nefarious that it was very easy to believe that there was a conspiracy behind the president's assassination and also that they were going to give you a story that was complete horseshit. But just the fact that, to me, the, the fact that Ruby kills Oswald tells everything you need to know, right? That's everything you need to know right, right there. He wasn't a patriot, you know? He was told to do that shit. And who told him to do it? Somebody in organized crime. Organized crime, I don't think you could overstate the level of influence that, over, that organized crime had in the United States in the 1960s, right? The reason that Kennedy and the federal government go on such a war path is because they recognized that, the, that, that, that things had gotten way out of control. And after President Kennedy gets killed, that's when I think they really realize, wow, you know, they killed the president. What else could they do? You know, we got to stop these guys. I mean, they were involved in government. They were involved in commerce. They were involved in entertainment. They were involved everywhere. Everywhere you turned, there was the mob exerting influence behind the scenes, pulling the strings. I mean, you know, uh, in addition to them corrupting government at every level, the reason that Hoffa was so powerful, I mean, the Teamsters Union controlled the trucking industry. Right. And they controlled everything about it. I mean, they could shut down America with that shit. You know, they were, they, 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 they were unions that controlled major parts of the American economy. 
and those unions were being you know run by people connected to organized crime. The power that organized crime held in their hands was immense, and I think that's why the federal government realized we have to stop this. We have to have an all-out assault against, and they did, and they were successful. It took them about twenty years, but they did it. You know, and if they had not done that. Who knows how corrupt things could have gotten, how much worse it could have gotten in the United States. We're over an hour here, so um, obviously I think everyone should read the book, uh, especially before this conversation, even though you've now gotten to the end of the conversation. Um, But what can people expect from you next? Is there another book coming? Well, you know, yeah, I hope to write another book. I don't have one in the works right now. I've got a couple of proposals that I'm cooking up, but... uh, but yeah, I host a podcast called Gamblers. It's on Spotify, uh, the Ringer Podcast Network. It's a Spotify original, but you can listen to it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Season one's out. I'm doing season two now. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just writing kind of magazine stuff and just writing here and there. Uh, but I hope there'll be a TV show one day for the Vapors, and uh, and I hope to write another book. But But right now I'm just podcasting just like you, my man. <laughs> cool. Well, I hope so too, because honestly, it's fascinating. And I think actually it would lend itself really well to to like a serial, to like a show that's, yeah, to a series. So um, David, thank you. Cheers. This was, uh, this was really cool to do. So thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for coming out. All right, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 268 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Hill. Like I said, grab the book, Subscribe to his podcast. He's doing a lot of interesting stuff. His research is really thorough and his writing is interesting. So I think that uh, if you're a fan of storytelling and you're a fan of this podcast, you will be a fan of his stuff as well. I am going to go back to my perch here in the woods and just take in the morning, but I will have an episode coming to you from the Catskills very soon. So please stay tuned. And as always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very soon.